From the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardes alum. This week, Purim. This week, Rabbi Meir Schweiger discusses Purim. Rabbi Meir Schweiger is a senior member of the Pardes faculty and also serves as the Meshkiach Ruchani, the spiritual guide for Pardes. And now, Rabbi Meir Schweiger. Thank you, Larry. Today we will talk about Pesach and Purim, so close and yet so far away. At first glance, there are very interesting similarities between Pesach and Purim. On Pesach, we drink four cups of wine. On Purim, there is this quasi-mitzvah of drinking, Adelo Yada, until we don't know the difference between Blessed is Mordechai and Cursed is Haman. On Pesach, we have a festive meal known as the Seder. And on Purim, we're required to have a festive meal. On Pesach, we are required to remember the Exodus. And we tell a story, which is known as the Haggadah. And on Purim, we have a requirement to remember the events of Purim by telling a story, by reading Migilat Esther. On Pesach, we begin our Seder by calling out to all those who have no place to go and offer them to come and eat with us at our Seder. And on Purim, we have an aroused social consciousness, which is expressed in two mitzvot of giving portions of food to our friends and gifts, gifts to the poor. On Pesach, we celebrate the redemption from slavery. And on Purim, we celebrate the deliverance from potential annihilation. As I mentioned, similar, but actually radically different. And that's what I'd like to examine right now, how they are different and what that says to us. So let's look at Pesach. The centerpiece of Pesach is the Seder. Many, many years ago, I heard Rabbi Soloveitchik refer to the Seder as the Jewish meal par excellence. We could also say the Jewish experience par excellence. What makes the Seder so unique? It integrates, and I want to emphasize this word, integrates many elements that are central to Judaism. Eating, or perhaps I should say sanctifying eating, or some people would say mindful eating, study, prayer, slash, praise, slash, singing, performance of mitzvot, eating the matzah, eating the maror, and in the time of the temple, eating the paschal lamb, chesed, at the outset of our seder, we invite those who are needy to come and join us. Family. At its core, the Seder is a family experience, and that is based on chapter 12 in the book of Exodus. The original Seder of the Jewish people was done per family. Each family gathered around together and ate the Paschal lamb. But it's not just the fact that I do all these different things, but they are actually integrated, woven together. And that's what makes the Seder so special. The meal is structured around four cups of wine. There's movement. We begin by sanctifying the day when we make Kiddush. But it's not only sanctifying the day, but it's setting the stage 
for sanctifying our meal, our eating, of making this eating part of a ritual act which is in service of God. And that idea which is expressed by the first cup of wine is then reinforced later by the third cup of wine, which is connected with Birkat Amazon, the grace after the meals. So these are the two bookends for our meals, one which introduces the meal, the other which concludes the meal, both of which are done over a cup of wine. But then after we introduce our meal, we then go to the second cup, which is associated with the telling of the story. We don't just then go and eat, but before we eat, we study, we learn. Why are we doing this meal in this night? What is the significance of what we're doing? The way that we study is done in an interactive way. In the Mishnah, it emphasizes that on the one hand, the father is supposed to prompt his child to ask a question. And on the other hand, the child is supposed to learn through asking questions and to push the father to give answers, which will give that child a deeper understanding. And the purpose of that deeper understanding is to ultimately make what's going on at the Seder not just a very interesting intellectual discussion, but in fact, to be a, an experience. As we find in the Mishnah, that one should see himself as if he now is leaving Egypt. The learning experience, which is interactive, should bring each person to a self-awareness of what is my journey of going from slavery to freedom. Where was I? Where am I going to? And although we're each going through that process individually, we're also sharing it and understanding that we are part of a community with the most natural core being the family unit. And then when we have come to that understanding of what it is to go from slavery to freedom, the next step, which is very logical, is to then praise God who has taken me along that journey, who has directed me, and who has enabled me and continues to enable me to actualize my human majesty. And so that when we have our second cup of wine, we end the process of learning with reciting the first two paragraphs of Halal, a kind of forspice, which will then find its fullest expression later on when we do the fourth cup where we not only complete the Hallel, but we then do an extended Hallel, which is known as the Hallel Hagadol. We say, Hodu Lashem Kitov, praise God for He is good, His mercy endures forever. And then we not only do the Hallel Hagadol, but then we add a whole slew of different Psalms and different Piyutim, so that there is this integration of individual and community, of study and prayer. And in the middle of all of that, eating the matzah, eating the maror, which is also part of my learning experience. It is reenacting what was done, but it also it has relevance to my relationship with God and those around me. I begin the Seder with the first two cups of wine, looking at the past. The last two cups are looking towards the future, so that the Seder is now integrating past, present, and future, individual and family, 
individual and community, study and prayer, mind and heart, not to mention chesed. Calling out to those people who have no place to go, inviting them into a friendly, warm environment, providing not only for their material needs, but even more for their emotional needs, integrating them into a larger unit. No one is lonely. No one is left out. And everything which I've just described revolves around bringing all of that into relationship with God so that the central goal of the Seder is to achieve that sense of integration, of oneness. And I would imagine that there are people who perhaps have experienced that at Starim on a social level, on a religious level, within themselves, but also together with the people around them. One could even make the argument that this was ultimately the point of the Exodus, to bring the Jewish people together, together in relationship with God, to take them out from slavery to freedom, where freedom means the ability to somehow integrate and be whole. In theory, that's what should also be happening on Purim. But as we will see in a moment, it actually isn't happening. In the Megillah, when Haman is very upset with Mordechai, and then comes to Achashverosh and proposes a solution for the Jewish problem, which in reality is really his problem with Mordechai, he describes the Jewish people as being Ammifuzarumiforad, a people that is very divided, I should say, excuse me, scattered and divided. Where scattered could be understood as geographically scattered, divided as being divisive. In fact, the remedy for the Jewish people is to come together as a people, which ultimately is what brings about their deliverance. And Mordechai says to Esther, you have to go to the king and you have to plead the case of the Jews. Esther is very reluctant. And Mordechai says, but perhaps this is what the reason why you became the queen, in order to be able to now play that significant role. But for Esther to play that role, she tells Mordechai that he needs to gather the Jewish people in prayer, in fasting, which means that if the Jewish people are going to achieve their deliverance, they need to actually come together as a people. And I would even add, by speaking about prayer, by fasting, when Mordechai says to Esther, who knows if this is the reason why you have come to this position. Although the name of God does not appear in the Megillah, is never explicitly stated, it seems to be that ultimately this coming together of the Jewish people is also connected with somehow coming into relationship with God, even if God is not explicitly named. The ultimate deliverance of the Jewish people in the story of Purim, which is brought about by Mordechai and Esther, perhaps is hinted to as ultimately being the work of God. And so that in theory, the deliverance of Purim is something which is also connected with a sense of integration and of unity. As I've noted in a previous podcast, 12 years ago, 2008, when the Jews originally celebrated their victory, 
They actually did it in what could be called true Persian style. How did they celebrate? By drinking. Drinking which then made them happy. In the same way that in chapter 1 of Megillat Esther, the Jewish people drink. I should, that was a Freudian slip. I should say that Achashverosh's court drinks, and there are parties all the time. My Freudian slip was that there is a Midrash, which says that the Jewish people were active participants in the drinking that was going on in Achashverosh's palace. Putting it differently, in many ways they were very assimilated in Persian culture. And so that when they have their initial victory, they celebrate in what would be a typical Persian way. And then what you find is, there's a certain historical development of the celebration of Purim, where at different periods and different personalities are trying to somehow give Purim a Jewish dimension because of the feeling that perhaps we should express, and maybe this, what happened over here, should make us much more Jewishly conscious. And then to a certain extent, and I realize perhaps the pejorative nature of what I'm about to say, there was a certain hodgepodge of different things which were put together, which essentially is what we do today, what we do today, which is attempting to perhaps, as I said, give Purim this Jewish spin, identity, but somehow it's not there yet. And what do I mean by that? As we noted earlier, on Purim, we read the Megillah, we remember. Memory is an ex- extremely important Jewish element. And clearly this idea of remembering can be connected with remembering the Exodus. But how do we remember? And in this way, Purim is very different than the Seder. We remember by reading a text. It's not interactive. It's not through questions and answers. We read a text, and we have to be meticulous in how we read this text. It has to be from a scroll. We have to read it exactly. We can't read it out of order. The reading of the Megillah in no way is connected with the festive meal that we have, unlike Pesach. We read the Megillah in the Beit Knesset. Perhaps we would read it in our home, but I don't know of anybody who actually reads the Megillah in the course of their festive meal on Purim and in a very structured way as part of the meal. We drink on Purim, but the drinking we do is not structured in the meal. It's not that we have four cups or whatever number of cups. The drinking is not at all connected with any type of religious act, study, prayer, kiddush, birkat hamazon. And I might even add, the whole idea of drinking until you don't know, and unfortunately we see this all too often, is that the drinking actually leads to people getting drunk, can sometimes be very, very ugly. It happens not only in the context of the meal, but anywhere, anytime, although I haven't seen people who actually drink during the reading of the Megillah, but the drinking does not seem to have any type of quote-unquote religious spiritual significance. And if anything, it seems to be a vestige of what actually was going on in Persian society. We give gifts to the poor. We give portions to our friends, portions of food. 
clearly all of those are trying to somehow be agents for creating a sense of community. But interestingly, the gifts to the poor, the portions of food we give to our friends, are separate from the meal that we have. There isn't necessarily the idea of inviting people to your meal on Purim in the same way as on Pesach. And certainly I don't discharge my obligation by inviting those people to my meal. So therefore, what I'm just trying to bring out is, although we do these different things, which are similar to what we do on Pesach, they seem to be very much bifurcated. They seem to be somehow each one separated from the other and in no way integrated and brought together. In Purim, on Purim, there is no real emphasis of the family. And it's true that families will get together and have their Purim meal, but the idea of making an effort to come with your family on Purim is very much paled by what is done during the Seder. So what I'm trying to bring out is, although we do a number of different things, which in a certain sense are trying to somehow bring us together as a community, to bring us in relationship to God, but somehow we're not getting it together. It's not coming together. And maybe the most striking facet of this is the very fact that we have two days of celebrating Purim, which are mutually exclusive. Most of the Jewish world celebrates Purim on the 14th day of Adar, but cities that are walled from the time of Joshua celebrate on the 15th day of Adar. And perhaps the most striking example is Jerusalem, which means that we're not all celebrating at the same time. We're not all on the same page. In chapter 12 of Exodus, at the original Seder, the first commandment given to the Jewish people is sanctifying the new moon and essentially creating a calendar and having what I would call a collective time consciousness. We all celebrate together at the same time. And lo and behold, on Purim, what was legislated or what was adapted was that, no, we celebrate different times. So what am I trying to get at? That as much as there is this desire on Purim towards this idea of coming together, there is also the reality that we are very much apart. And perhaps this reflects the idea of Purim being a galut holiday, where galut means being scattered, not together, not integrated. And that while we have this aspiration to come together, there's still a very big gap between our aspiration and the reality. And perhaps the rabbis built in to how we celebrate Purim, the sense of not being integrated. Not yet. On the one hand, we read the Megillah, which is remembering, which is an intellectual experience, which has to do with knowing. And yet, on the other hand, we drink Adolo Yada. So, what are we doing? We're on the one hand trying to know. We're on the one hand trying to connect with our past. And on the other hand, what are we doing? We're drinking, which is in a certain sense, obfuscating everything. On the one hand, we're trying to come together as a community, but the way we're doing it is by having everybody do their own thing. Somehow there is this sense 
that in the midst of everything that we're doing, we're still very much fractured and divided. We're happy, but our happiness is by drinking and maybe getting drunk, not necessarily by coming together with other people. And why is this so? Well, first of all, in Purim, if I just go back to what I said earlier by the Pesach celebration, God is not mentioned in what's going on. There's also no sense of direction and purpose in the events that unfold in terms of the whole redemption. When Mordechai and Esther save the Jewish people, what's the next step? Where are we going? What's the game plan? There is no sense of a game plan. We end the Megillah, Achashverosh is taxing his people, Mordechai is in this very special position, but we're left with the question of, and where is this going to? And who says that in another five, ten years, Mordechai won't be out? Another Haman Haman will not come on the scene. Will there be any kind of Jewish unity? Will there be any Jewish revival in terms of coming back to God? Or will it be that at a certain point, the Jewish people will go back to what they were used to and... And remember, and one might even say, pay lip service or pay to, you know, this deliverance which happened. But it hasn't radically transformed who they are. And so what I want to bring up is that in certain ways, Purim has very, very positive elements to it. Mordechai and Esther were very, very proactive and ultimately brought about the deliverance of the Jewish people. They brought it about in a way which recognized that the strength of the Jewish people is in their unity and perhaps also in their turning to God. But on the other hand, when the day is over, the Jewish people are still in Achashverosh's kingdom and in a certain sense are playing by the rules that Achashverosh sets out. Interestingly, the rabbis raise a question why don't we say Halal Ampurim? And I want to look at two explanations that are given. One is, well, the reading of the Megillah is the Halal of Purim, which is a very interesting explanation. In a way, what it's saying is that when we read the Megillah, that becomes, in a way, how we praise God, because if one actually looks, delves into the story, you might be able to see the hand of God there. But I think we all realize that reading the Megillah is not a spiritual singing experience, like saying Hallel. There's a second explanation that's given, that, well, we can't say Hallel, because Hallel fundamentally has to do with going from slavery to freedom. But in the case of Purim, we're still the slaves of Achashverosh, which is a fascinating statement, because theoretically you could say, well, the Jewish people, they're not enslaved. They're certainly not enslaved as the Jews were in the time of Pharaoh. But maybe the Jewish people are actually spiritually enslaved during Akashverosh. And maybe it means that they're living in a framework which stifles them spiritually, a framework which is preoccupied with the here and now, which has no sense of past, no sense of future, no sense of direction, nothing that they're aspiring to. And maybe that's why we can't really sing. And maybe that's also why we find it very hard to integrate all these things because essentially we're living in a reality where we feel very, very conflicted. 
and perhaps see things more in a polarizing way. So I will end by saying that maybe this is something which we take away from Purim. On the one hand, we celebrate, we celebrate all the positive things which I mentioned earlier. But on the other hand, we also realize the shortcomings of, of the celebration of Purim. And not only that, but I would even say the conflicting emotions and experiences which we have on Purim. And perhaps this is the reason why we have the juxtaposition between Purim and Pesach. Purim, in various ways, becomes a stepping stone to Pesach. Pesach becomes the time where we can now take those elements of Purim, which are very, very positive, and bring them together. Bring them together, bring about that integration, bring about that sense of purpose, bring about that sense of not just fate, but of destiny. So as we celebrate this Purim, at the same moment that we rejoice over our victory and over our deliverance, from the cusp of annihilation, we should also perhaps reflect how Purim is simply a stepping stone, is not the end game. And that with whatever we achieved on Purim, we still live in a reality filled with contradictions, filled with divisions, filled with a lack of direction. And that Purim is the time to begin reflecting, and not only reflecting, but moving towards a more integrated, purposeful existence. Purim Sameach to all. Thank you, Rabbi Schweiger. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.